All right, welcome back. Hope that uh, you are having a, a good week. I always love this chance to meet in the middle of the week. This is uh, definitely a privilege for me. I know that uh, many of you are busy and there are other places that you could uh, be, but you're here and uh, you want to be with God's people and you want to enjoy God's word. So I think that is huge. And I, I think that this is going to be an important class that we're going to have this evening, an important time that we have together. I hope it's, uh, it's going to be helpful. Uh, but before we do that, um, as you can tell, like last week, we have uh, this back table with uh, homework if you want to do it. This is like auditing a class, I guess. Uh, homework if you want to do it. Uh, I don't know who got to read that great article by Walt Kaiser um, on the mission of Israel. Did anybody get a chance to read that? I don't have any candy this week uh, to hand out, but <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah, any? did you like that article? Anything that's stood out to you? I didn't know there would be a question, but anything stand out to you from it? You remember it? It was very... Okay. Okay. Well, we won't tell everybody else that. Keep that quiet. Yeah. I had a plan from the very beginning to Yes, right. So sometimes we think of mission as just a New Testament concept, like all of a sudden God decided to start focusing on mission in the New Testament. But Walt Kaiser in that article was saying, actually, a mission is an Old Testament word. And uh, part of why God chose Israel was to accomplish that mission. So that, that's a really good article. If you have a chance, there's some other articles I put back there this week. There's one by uh, Jason DeRauchi, uh, an introduction to the Old Testament that's a little bit longer. And then uh, there's another, there was another article on uh, why uh, we need to know, our important facts we need to know about the Old Testament. So I hope that's encouraging uh, for you. Uh, but obviously, one of the reasons I'm giving you all these articles on uh, the Old Testament is because we are studying the Bible and we're beginning with the Old Testament and we're going pretty slowly. We're just taking it one step at a, at, at a time. And uh, that's one of the advantages of this not being an actual class in a college or something because uh, we can just take all the time in the world uh, and go slowly. But we began a couple weeks ago almost at the very beginning by just uh, looking at the Bible and asking what kind of book is this? And uh, we said it is the word of God, which is something that we can uh, take for granted, but in the Bible, uh, God speaks. And uh, sometimes we don't always feel the full effect of that, uh, partly because when we think of hearing from someone, we think of them talking directly to us. And uh, maybe when we talk about God speaking, we uh, think of a voice from the sky, and that's one way God can speak, certainly, but it's not the only way God can speak. It's not even the only way we speak. We communicate to one another in different ways, like through letters and uh, someone delivering a message on our behalf, and those are valid ways for humans to communicate a message with one another, and for God as well. So sometimes God has spoken uh, from a voice in the sky, but other times God's used messengers. God is able to use humans to say exactly what he wants to say. And that seems to be the most frequent way that he's chosen to speak. And sometimes it's been through verbal prophecy. He's raised up prophets who would stand in front of others and speak. And when they spoke, they were speaking the very words of God. But also sometimes those prophets wrote things down. And that's what we have in the Bible. It's uh, really a miracle, the Bible. And I, I hope that we always, uh, we pray that we'll always uh, appreciate what a miracle it is in that it was written by humans 
So it's a very human book. But at the same time, it was written by God, and it is God's word. And that shapes the way we approach it this year. It, it, it means that we have to come with a humble attitude. We are listening to God as we read and study this book together, and we are humans, and uh, we are not God's equal, and so we're not his judge, and uh, we don't get to stand over the Bible, but the Bible stands over, over us. And it's really important to grab hold of that and remember that when you open your Bible up because there are parts that are going to be difficult. Like last week we said the Old Testament. We're starting with the Old Testament and the Old Testament can be difficult. You open up the Old Testament, you're excited because you know it's God's word. And there are parts that are there that you see are definitely amazing. But there are also parts that you're reading and you are kind of scratching your head. I was in uh, Numbers recently and I was reading about this census of Israel's warriors and thinking, wow, this is a lot of different names. Or you might be in, in Genesis and reading about Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, uh, and they both do something terrible. And Judah actually says, you are more righteous than I. And you think, how is that righteous? Or you're just reading some of the poetry in a book like the Song of Songs, and you don't normally read poetry, maybe. <laughs> and after a while, it can be like, uh, I know we say this is God's word, and I believe it's God's word, but is it really important? Am I really sure that this is important? And obviously, there are a lot of people that would say no, so we Google the Old Testament, and we're going to get a lot of different opinions, or we talk to unbelievers, and we find that there are people who definitely don't like the Old Testament. Often there are people who haven't read it. One of the best things to do when somebody uh, brings up a contradiction in the Bible or talks about the Bible in negative ways is to ask them how much they have read. But there are people definitely who have read some of the Old Testament and say terrible things about it and who would tell you that they think it's not important. But last week we saw that there's one very important person who would disagree, and that's Jesus. Jesus would say, yes, this is important. This was his Bible. The Old Testament was Jesus's Bible. And Jesus would say, the Old Testament is vital for understanding the whole thing. If you don't understand the Old Testament, at least to a degree, you won't understand the Bible. He would say it's important for your life. And it's definitely important for understanding who he is. And so it's like you have all these people on this side minimizing the Old Testament uh, and saying it's unimportant, and then you have one person who rose from the dead on the other side, and he's saying that the Old Testament's very important. He's maximizing it, and we are choosing to listen to the person who rose from the dead. I always think it's a good idea, if someone rises from the dead, to listen to what they say, and that is why we are here. Even when the Old Testament is hard and confusing, we believe it's God's word because Jesus believed it's God's word, and Jesus believed it is important and so we need to understand our Old Testament. But the question is, how? How? And before we get into the specifics of the Old Testament, which I can't wait to do, we're going to look at Genesis coming up and the Pentateuch uh, in a couple of weeks. But before we do that, I want to give you some helps, some basic helps to benefiting from the Old Testament. I uh, once heard uh, someone describe the way people approach the Old Testament often at the Old Testament for them is almost like a disorganized closet. And so if uh, you have a closet that you just stuff all your stuff into, it might have a lot of amazing things in there, but it's hard for you to know 
where it all is because it's just a jumbled mess. And so some people, when they think about the Old Testament, it feels almost like a disorganized closet to them. And so I want to help you uh, clean your closet a little. And we're going to start with talking about what the Old Testament is. Benefiting from the Old Testament starts with understanding what the Old Testament is. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. What is the Old Testament? And uh, one reason we're going to talk about that is because many different people have many different ideas about what the Old Testament is. So some uh, believers, they know they're supposed to benefit from the Old Testament, but they're not really sure how. And so they approach the Old Testament almost like a quote book. And uh, that's how they try to benefit from it. They look for a good quote that they can uh, just get something from. Others think of the Old Testament almost as a magical book. And so they use phrases from the Old Testament without really understanding what those phrases mean or the context of those phrases, because they hope that the words themselves might have some sort of power. If I just say the words, maybe that will bring me encouragement or strength. Others look at the Old Testament more like a rule book. I uh, read about someone who tried to keep all the laws of the Old Testament, and he wrote a book about it. He called it The Year of Living Biblically, which is ironic because that's totally not biblical living, actually. Uh, First of all, because he couldn't keep all the laws of the Old Testament. Now that would be impossible because he's living in a completely different setting. And that's not how the Old Testament works right now. Anyway, Jesus told us that, but that's how he treated the Old Testament. And so you can see this is an important question. The way you answer the question, what is the Old Testament, is going to impact uh, the way you read it and your ability to understand it, which is not that different than a lot of other books, actually. We kind of, with any difficult book, would do this almost naturally. If I uh, put a book on the table and you start reading through the book and uh, it says one cup of flour, two cups of sugar, three cups of cardamom, I don't think that would be any real recipe, but (laughs) all the ladies are like, cups? I don't know. That's basically what I know. But you would know that's a cookbook, and uh, if you didn't know that was a cookbook, you would think this is a very weird way of writing. I I don't know what to do with these words. Or a law code. If you pick up, you go to the DMV and you pick up a law code, it helps to know what that book is, or a poetry book, certainly. You have to know what it is to understand what you're reading. And so what is the Old Testament? And that might uh, seem kind of like a difficult question because it's not just one book. Technically, it's 39 different books, and you've got all kinds of things that are going on in there. You open up your Old Testament, and you've got parts in there that that kind of sound a little bit like a cookbook, actually. I read this this morning. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. Leviticus 24.5, that sounds a little bit like a cookbook. You've got other parts that are great quotes, for sure. You've got uh, love poetry. You've got miraculous stories. You've got history. You've got talk about the future. You've got wisdom for, for living. And so is there really a way you can take all of that and understand how it fits together? To answer that, I think you have to think about what is God essentially doing in the Old Testament? Because he's not trying to do everything. So you don't want to think of the Bible as less than what it is, but you also don't want to think of the Bible as different than what it is. If you approach the Bible like God was trying to teach you how to be a mechanic, if you uh, 
come to the Old Testament and think God's trying to teach me how to fix a car, you're going to be disappointed because that's not what God is trying to do in the Old Testament. And if you tried to use the Old Testament like that, you're going to end up twisting it and distorting it. And so to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand what God is doing in the Old Testament. And essentially what God's doing in the Old Testament is telling a story, a story. Obviously the, uh, the Old Testament has lots of stories in it, but all of those stories are coming together to tell one big story. Even the way uh, the Hebrew Bible is put together illustrates that. So the English Bible, the order of our books is different than the Hebrew Bible and the way they order the books. Same books, but different order. The way the uh, Hebrew Bible begins is with the book of Genesis, and the way the Hebrew Bible ends is with the book of Chronicles. And if you look at Genesis and Chronicles, they uh, are in some ways similar books, and they're similar books because they're part of this great big story that the Bible is, the Old Testament is telling. If you go to the very first page of the Old Testament, how does it begin? In the beginning, that's how you begin a story, and it's got an ending. The ending of the Old Testament is actually given in the New Testament, but you do get previews of the end of the story in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament has a beginning. It points toward an ending. It has a plot. It's not just a bunch of random details and facts and quotes and ideas. As we read the Old Testament, we see how things start. We see where things are supposed to go, and we see something's gone wrong, and we learn what God's doing to fix it. And so this is a huge story. It's not uh, just any kind of story. It's a story more in the sense of history, God's history of what actually is important. And so if you go to school, they teach you uh, history, obviously, and we usually think of history as a record of what happened. But uh, while it is that, history is more than that. It's a story of the meaning of what happened. And the way you tell history has power. It makes a difference in the way you think and how you live. And that story, that history helps you interpret your life. As Americans, we are told our history so that we can understand what it means to be an American. Even in your own lives, you have a a story. You have a past, you have a father, you have a mother, a place you came from. And as you think about who you are now and what you're doing with your life, that story affects you and shapes the way you think and the way you act. As someone has explained, we live by internal stories inside of us that tell us how things are supposed to go. Have you ever been shocked by the difference between people, say at exam time? One guy buckles down all semester, studies hard, and by sheer effort is pulling a C. He's poised to pass, but then he skips his exam and goes fishing, fails the course, and fails to graduate. It was all there in front of him, but the internal story told him, you are a failure. You won't amount to anything, and he doesn't. By contrast, another guy lives with such a powerful story of life and his success that he fools around all semester. Envious people say, look, pal, the jig's up for you. The music's going to stop and you're going to be left with the bill. But he pulls an all-nighter, swaggers into his, his exam and leaves with an A. His internal story says, the jig is never up. I was made to shine. I've known both of those guys. Most of us live somewhere in between. We also live by big overarching stories that tell us what to do and where we're going. One of those stories is work hard, do the right thing, and life will work out for you. You will rise above the pack and become a success. Another story is believe in yourself, give yourself to fulfill your dreams, and you can be anything you want to be. Both of those stories are powerful stories, but are they enough for life? No, of course not. 
And the Old Testament is written to tell us God's story of reality, God's big story of reality, so that our lives will be shaped by it. Michael Goheen explains, he says, all human life is shaped by some story. Here's an illustration. Imagine yourself at, or imagine someone at a bus stop when a young man standing next to him says, the Latin name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Can you imagine somebody saying that to you at a bus stop? One can understand the meaning of that sentence, but what on earth is the young man doing in uttering it in the first place? This particular action can be understood only if it's placed in a broader framework of meaning, a story that renders the saying comprehensible. Three stories could make this incident meaningful. First, the young man has mistaken the man standing next to him for another person he saw yesterday in the library who asked, do you by any chance know the Latin name of the common duck? Or he's just come from a session with a psychotherapist who's helping him deal with his painful shyness. The psychotherapist urges him to talk to strangers. The young man asks, what shall I say? The psychotherapist says, oh, anything at all. Or he's a Soviet spy who's arranged to meet his contact, his contact at the bus stop. The code that will reveal his identity is the statement about the Latin name of the duck. The meaning of the encounter at the bus stop depends on which story shapes it. In fact, each story will give the event a different meaning. It's like that with our lives. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story which my life story is a part? And the Old Testament is God telling that story, not just for your individual life, but for the whole world. It's an interpretation of history that explains the meaning of human life. It's the true story of the world in which we live and find our place and role. It helps us understand all of human history and the details of our lives by telling a single story that gives meaning to everything that's happened. Kevin Van Hooser explains. He says, the Bible, I don't think, is just a set of principles. It doesn't read like a systematic theology if you read it from cover to cover. It's not simply a worldview, the way philosophers talk about it, and it's certainly not a moral code only. People assume that Christianity means do this, don't do that. But it may be all these things in part, but in the, in the first instance, that's not what I would say the Bible is. The Bible, I think, is explaining Christianity by telling us a long story. It's about God taking an initiative, rescuing the world from what's happened to it, this death, this sequence of destruction. And I see the Bible then as a transcript of the interaction between God and the people of God throughout centuries of history. But the focus of the Bible is what God has done in history and God's doing. I also think the Bible's a little bit like a dramatic script because it's the story in which the church and Christians find themselves caught up. In other words, we aren't simply reading about somebody else's story. We are reading about the story in which we are caught up and we are caught up as actors. There are lines for us to say, things for us to do. We are in the thick of it. So at the heart of the Bible, there is a gripping story about God and human beings. I think it's a love story of cosmic proportions, not boy meets girl, but God meets world, loses world, gets world back. In other words, the Old Testament's not just a, a book of religion with advice and suggestions. It is God's story, which explains the world as, actually, as it actually is. And understanding that story, the story that it tells, is key to understanding how the different details fit. One of the best illustrations I've heard is of a photo mosaic in, in terms of describing the Old Testament. And you know a photo mosaic, it's a collection of all these individual pictures. So you have all those individual pictures grouped together 
And if you look at the individual pictures, you're like, what is, what is that? It's a picture of you at a picnic, or it's a picture of a dog. And you can imagine all those individual pictures, and yet all those individual pictures are brought together so that when you step back, you see a bigger picture. And that's how the Old Testament works. God is bringing all these individual pictures together to show us one big picture of what God's doing in the world, which means to understand any individual story and any small detail, we need to be able to answer what is this story about. Almost kind of like if you were doing a, a puzzle, it would be very difficult to, to actually do a puzzle if you didn't have the picture on the front of the box. If the way you did puzzles was just dump out the pieces and look at the pieces and not look at the picture on the front of the box, you would, you would be doing that puzzle for the rest of your life, probably. And if you read the Old Testament like that, just looking at all the details without understanding the big picture, it's no wonder that you're really having a hard time understanding the Old Testament. And you're definitely going to have a hard time understanding those individual pieces because those individual pieces all go together to make one big picture. And so to understand the Old Testament and the details, first of all, you need to make sure you understand what the story is about. And there are a couple different ways you might do that. One way you could summarize the Old Testament story and what it's about is just to say it's about God. So that's very a, a very simple way and very true. This is a story about God. And yet, I can't tell you how many people have trouble reading the Bible because they, they don't know that. <laughs> they uh, are really frustrated because they want it to be a story first about them. But there's a reason the Bible begins in the beginning God, not in the beginning Josh or your name. Because the Old Testament is ultimately about the greatness of God. And so one of the reasons the, that God wrote the Old Testament was to glorify himself. You might say that's its purpose. James Hamilton explains, if we listen carefully to the Bible, it will proclaim to us the glory of God. If we do not hear this, the problem is with us, not the Bible. And uh, what is the glory of God? That can be a little hard to define, but one man puts it like this. The glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of who God is and the resulting name or reputation that he gains from his revelation of himself as creator sustainer, judge, and redeemer, perfect in justice and mercy, loving kindness and truth. So it is God's character put on display. And that's what's going on in the Old Testament. God is putting his character on display. And it's beautiful. And specifically, he's putting his love on display as he rescues sinners and his holiness as he judges sin. God is glorifying himself by saving sinners and judging sin. The created realm is like a theater that serves to demonstrate the saving and judging glory of God, to reveal the saving and judging glory of God. So this is a God-centered story. We open it up and he's creating. But what is God intending to do in creation? Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Then we keep reading, and we see God choosing Israel. But why did God choose Israel? Jeremiah 13, 11. 
I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. And then we see him saving Israel. But why does God go about work, the work of rescuing people? What is he doing in saving them? Isaiah 44, 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And as we uh, see God saving, we also see him judging sin. And why does God judge sin? Exodus 14. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so the Old Testament is designed, written in such a way to help you see the greatness and glory of God. Which means whenever you read the Old Testament, you wanna ask yourself, what does this passage show me about the greatness and glory of God? Are there statements, direct statements that the passage makes about God? Are there illustrations the passage uses to describe God? Are there implications from the story that can be drawn about the character of God? What needs to be true about God for what took place in the passage to happen, have happened? How does this passage make God look great? Is there any way I would have responded to what happened differently than what God, than God, the way God did? And if so, obviously God's response is correct. So what am I missing about God that I need to remember if I'm gonna appreciate him for who he is? And so if you're reading the Old Testament, one of your goals is to see the glory of God because that's God's goal in writing it. And if you're reading the Old Testament and you don't understand much, but you're growing in your appreciation for the greatness of God, then you're on the right track because that's the reason from the old, for the Old Testament. If you uh, read this book as if you were the most important person, you're not going to understand it. That's like reading the Bible with a, a hand in front of your face. It's because this is a story about about God. You're going to have to move this hand to be able to really benefit from it. This is a story about, about the glory of God. Though I suppose if you wanted to get more specific, another way you could summarize the Old Testament is to say that it is especially designed by God to get us ready for Jesus. So that's how Jesus describes his purpose, its purpose in Luke 24. You remember as he's, uh, we've quoted this passage many times, but in Luke 24, 44 through 46, he's talking to the disciples, and uh, he explains um, the purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal what God was going to accomplish through him. When uh, Paul talks to uh, Timothy about the Old Testament in 2 Timothy 3, he says uh, that the Old Testament is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so one of the primary purposes of the Old Testament is to help you understand who Jesus is and how salvation works. And uh, sometimes people wonder, why didn't God just provide salvation in Genesis 4? I'm not obviously sure of the full reason for that, but I think maybe part of that is because God wants to put Jesus on display, and what God is doing through Jesus is so important 
that he takes thousands of years and all kinds of pages in our Bibles to get us ready for it. And that's actually part of, in 1 Peter 1, why Peter's like, do you realize how privileged you are to have the whole Bible? (laughs) Because the Old Testament prophets were writing to reveal Jesus to you, but they didn't get the whole story. They didn't understand it fully, but you now, they, God told them they were writing for you so that you could understand what was happening with Jesus. And so God orchestrated history so that you could see how beautiful Jesus is. And that's what we find in the Old Testament. You open up to Genesis, and Genesis is like, this is going to be big, what God's going to do through Jesus. And so Genesis gets us ready to see how epic the salvation Jesus is going to provide with by starting with the creation of the world. And God is saying, this is about what I'm doing on the, on, the, on the whole planet. And it reveals the problem with the world as well. And then it gives us this promise that God's going to send someone to overcome Satan and reverse the curse, and even explains later that he's going to be ruler of the universe. So this is huge. But can God do it? That's the question. And you turn to Exodus, and Exodus makes clear no one can stop him. It gives us this picture of God's ability to set his people free and a glimpse of why God's saving this way. And then it goes on to give us this idea of the tabernacle. God wants to dwell with man. And also, again, the problem that man can't see God and live. And then there's Leviticus. Exodus ends with a big problem, actually. We'll get to that when we get to Exodus. But Exodus ends with a big problem. God's created this tabernacle. He wants to live with his people. He comes to live in the tabernacle, and nobody can go in. It's like the Garden of Eden's back on earth but it's still locked. Moses can't get in. And that's the purpose of Leviticus. Leviticus is how can we get back into the Garden of Eden, basically, and shows us how impossible it is for us as we are right now in this sin-cursed world to live in the presence of God because he's so holy and he's so right and everything around him has to be holy and right and we're just so sinful and broken. And so we begin getting this idea that we need something to atone for us and something to be able to make us clean again, and that's going to involve blood and sacrifice. Then Numbers. Numbers shows us what's wrong with Israel. Israel is supposed to be this means that God uses to save the world, and yet uh, Israel fails in in the wilderness, and Numbers shows us what's wrong with us as well. It's a a real-life example of why we're not going to be able to set up the kingdom as we are right now. And then it gives us, Numbers gives us one of the most important prophecies about the Messiah in Numbers 24, coming from actually the mouth of an unbelieving prophet. (laughs) It's very ironic, as it talks about God crushing his enemies and establishing a kingdom for Israel. And Deuteronomy, there's too many things in Deuteronomy, but when it comes to the work of the Messiah, there's Moses saying, that the Messiah is going to be a great prophet like him. And so Moses sets us up in Deuteronomy to expect a second Moses, which helps you understand why Matthew and Luke are so often telling stories that show us Jesus looking an awful lot like Moses as he feeds people in the wilderness and walks on water, controls 
the sea. And it gives us what you would call the law of the king. And so that's a standard to evaluate future would-be messiahs. You can know whether they're the messiah, whether they live up to that standard or not. Joshua keeps us hoping in God's promises about the messiah because it shows us God's able to do what he said. And then Judges proves once and for all we need a hero who's going to be a king. Ruth, the very last word, I think, is David. So Ruth, you combine it with Judges, we need a king. And we need a specific Davidic king. First and second Samuel begins with a prayer that's a prophecy about how God's going to break his adversaries to pieces and judge the ends of the earth through a future Messiah. And then we get this idea about a kingdom that lasts forever and a king who represents the people. And through his obedience, God's going to bring all these blessings. And first and second Kings, I'm just going to give you the punchline. It tells us that this messianic king has to be perfect and should cause us to anticipate that if this is going to work, he's also going to have to live forever. First and Second Chronicles, same story, only to add to that, we need a perfect king and we need a perfect priest. The next couple of books in our Bible come from a time after Israel was sent into exile. So it's like fast forward to the end of the Old Testament story. And Ezra and Nehemiah show us that even with all God's done and with people who are saying they want to obey God's law, they're not going to be able to establish God's kingdom. So it gets us longing again for the Messiah. Like, okay, Israel was kicked out of the land. They were disciplined. God kept his promise and brought them back to the land, but there's still a major problem. Esther gives us hope that God's working behind the scenes even when you can't see him. And one really cool thing about Esther is the way it ends because you got this guy Mordecai who at the beginning was attacked and it looked bad for him, but God raises him up, gives him this important position of authority, which parallels Joseph. And so it's sort of like a hint, like God's people are in a bad space right now, but this has happened before and God sent a rescuer and he's going to do it again. And so it's pushing the story forward. And then Job. Job takes us way back. Some people say it's the uh, first book of the Bible that was written. And uh, actually would say that Job was written to show you why you need a Bible. You can't understand what God's doing in this world from human wisdom. You need God to reveal himself. But Job, as he struggles with suffering in this world, he's got some things he's longing for. First of all, he wants God to deal with the problem of sin. Second of all, Job says he knows he needs a mediator. He says he wants someone who's able to lay his hand on God and man. So that's like, I need a hero who has a unique relationship with God and and man. And then he's longing for someone to deal with the problem of death. He says, if man dies, shall he live again? Job knew he had a redeemer, but he didn't know how God was going to go about it. He just knew what he needed in a Messiah. And the rest of us tells us God's answers to Job's desires. You look at Job's questions, and that gets you ready to understand the Bible. God's going to answer Job's questions. The Psalms, the Psalms we read often devotionally, but really the Psalms are five books we're going to see, five separate books, and they tell a story. The Psalms tell a story. They start a certain way and end a certain way. And the story the Psalms tell is about the work of the Messiah. Psalm 2, at the very beginning, says he's God's son, and God's going to make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. And I'm just trying to give you a sense of how the Old Testament shows us Jesus. This is why the Old Testament was written, to get us ready for Jesus. And actually, I could go through all the rest of the books of the Old Testament, (laughs) I do here, but the point is that the Old Testament, uh, there are parts that are hard to understand, but it's not hard 
to see that it is driving us to put all of our hopes in this coming hero. It's stripping us of this tendency that we have to trust in ourselves and depend on ourselves and pushing us to trust completely in him. And it takes everything we could possibly long for and says over and over that it all depends on him coming. Forgiveness, world peace, prosperity, our relationship with God, final justice, all hang on the coming Messiah. And the New Testament tells us that Messiah is Jesus. He's here. He's the main point of the Bible, which means when we read the Old Testament, it's getting us ready for Jesus. That's why it's here. And it does that in many, many different ways. There are Christophanies in the Old Testament. That means appearances of Jesus before he uh, took on human flesh. Uh, Many people think that's often what the angel of the Lord is, is a Christophany. There's something called types, which we'll talk about at some point. Prophecies, direct prophecies. There are titles. There are analogies. There are people who do things that Jesus does better. There are many of these analogies just in the way that God has written history. He gives us many pictures of Jesus before Jesus comes. So, and this is, I think, Tim Keller who's written this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father, but actually sacrificed by his father. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betray him and sold him and uses his new power to save us. I can't wait till we look at the story of Joseph because Joseph is such a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people victory, although they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly palace, and who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the ultimate lamb, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, ultimately. And he's not just the main point of the Old Testament. He's the main uh, point of the universe and certainly the main point of your life as well. If you want to summarize the Old Testament, uh, you might say it's about God, the glory of God. That's its purpose. You might say it's about Jesus. But there's one more way to summarize the Old Testament, and it's the way Jesus did, which, of course, It's pretty significant since he's the author. Um, The main author of the Bible is God and Jesus is God. And so I wonder if you ever thought when you're struggling with the Old Testament, what if God could come to earth and tell me what this book is about? Well, obviously he did. (laughs) Jesus is God. He went around preaching. And when Jesus went around preaching, he went around preaching primarily about one thing. And what was that one thing? If you uh, got to go listen to a sermon of Jesus's, sometimes maybe you think, I repeat myself. Um, But if you went to 
hear a sermon of Jesus's, uh, you know what you would hear? You'd hear him talking about love, maybe you would think, or you'd hear him talking about uh, something like that. But the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, they summarize Jesus's message with a, uh, a simple phrase, and they, 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 they use this to summarize his message over and over. Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of God. So Luke 4.43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke 8, verse 1, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And so Luke is 41 pages long, and Jesus talks about the kingdom of God 40 times. In the Gospel of Matthew, he records Jesus talking about it one and a half times every page. According to Jesus, uh, when he preached on the Old Testament, he preached about the kingdom of God. It's, it's about the kingdom of God. That's its theme. So the reason for the Old Testament is the glory of God. The purpose is to get you ready for Jesus, and the theme is the kingdom of God, which is, which is helpful. But obviously, for that to be very helpful, you have to know what the kingdom of God is. And so you have to say, if Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? And uh, there's a sense in which we could take a long time to answer that question because it's a great, big, wonderful question. But I'm going to give you a description of the kingdom that I found helpful, which is very simple. One author uh, defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. So if we ever had an exam and I gave you a a test, I might ask you, what is the Old Testament about? And you could say the kingdom of God. And then I might ask you, what is the kingdom of God? And you could say God's people in God's place, living under God's rule. So you have to think about each of those terms beginning at the end. God's rule. So the kingdom of God obviously has to do with God's rule. God ruling. So Psalm 103, verse 19, is a a verse that uses it this way. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. One of the ways uh, the word kingdom is used has to do with God being in charge. He is king and he rules over all creation. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God ruling. But that can't be all that Jesus means when he uses the phrase kingdom of God because he talks about the kingdom of God being at hand. He talks about the kingdom of God as if it were something new that were happening with him. And we know that God's always been king. So there's never been a time when God was not king. So if all the kingdom of God meant was that God is ruling, then Jesus couldn't talk about it as being at hand or a new development in God's plan. I think even of how Jesus says we should pray, thy kingdom come. If all he meant was God ruling, then he wouldn't teach us to pray that God's kingdom would come because God is already ruling. The Bible is very clear about that. God is on in charge. Instead, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about God ruling his people in a very visible way. So kingdom, the way Jesus uses it, involves rulership, a ruler, and a realm. So it involves the act of ruling, it involves the person who rules, and it involves a place to be ruled. 
Essential to the word kingdom, one man explains, is the actual exercise of authority in a realm over which one has the sovereign right to rule. And it's fun to do this, to, uh, to do this because as we do this, you're going to start to see the question you need to be asking as you read the New Testament <laughs> and Luke. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he is picking up on a promise that was made throughout the Old Testament prophets. So he's not just coming into the world saying, oh, what would be fun to talk about? Kingdom of God. No, he is continuing. He's continuing a theme that has been preached before. So obviously the Old Testament prophets, they knew that God ruled over all creation. But as they looked around them, they also knew they couldn't see it because the world looked like a mess. People were doing bad things and God's people were suffering. And so they spoke of this great day in the future when God would break through all of that and fix all of that and establish his kingdom on the earth. So Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12 puts it like this. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And he talks about the judgment of the wicked. Isaiah verse 2, actually, excuse me, uh, chapter 2 verse 2 says like this. says it like this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And he says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so the prophet is looking forward to this day in the future when God would establish his kingdom and rule on this earth and bring peace to this earth. And as we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we've discovered that these are real, they are concrete promises that God makes regarding the future. It's not just, oh, God rules, but things are going to go on as they have always gone on with all the suffering you see around you right now. No, the Old Testament expectation was salvation, the restoration of the nation of Israel and an earthly kingdom of God under the Messiah with land and physical blessings for Israel as the basis for bringing blessings to the nations. And if you wonder if that's what Old Testament people were expecting, read Luke chapter 1, um, verse uh, 66 and following. Zechariah is a good Old Testament priest, and this is what he was expecting. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the end of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so what is Zechariah expecting? 
He is expecting salvation, Israel to be saved from, from their enemies and for Jesus to establish the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. And that's, of course, why the apostles were always arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Why were they, was it like, why were they so interested in that? Because they thought, they were thinking, what part of this land are we going to get to rule? <laughs> you know, who is going to, who's going to be given the highest position here? Because Jesus is the Messiah and he's come to establish his, his kingdom. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about that promise. He's talking about God ruling over his people through his promised king in, in, in his place in a way that fills the world with his glory. And just imagine that. Can you imagine that? Imagine everything going perfectly in the world. No sickness, no death, no pain, no suffering. You and I loving each other the way we're supposed to. No fighting, no lusting, worshiping God, experiencing his presence. That's where the world's going. We can summarize the Old Testament as being about God defeating his enemies and establishing his kingdom where he rules over his people through his designated representative in his place. It shows us the way the world is going to be and how God's going to bring that about. And so if you trace the story of the Old Testament, I think you see that. You go back to the beginning, and what do you get? You get a picture of the kingdom. And I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. When we open up our Bibles to the very beginning, we see the world the way God made it to be. You've got God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, submitting to God's rule, and as a result, experiencing God's blessing and God's doing this ruling through a representative. That was his plan, a human representative to be his sort of vice regent. And that representative was Adam. Although God is his kingdom's high king and ultimate sovereign, one writer puts it, he has chosen to rule the kingdom immediately. His first mediatorial, mediatorial ruler was the first man, Adam. And of course, Adam failed. But then there's the fall. And you could call this the perished kingdom. Adam and Eve turn over authority, the authority of this world to Satan. They listen to Satan's interpretation of thing, things and start thinking life would work better if they rejected God's rule and started living on their own. And so they're put out of the garden because they wouldn't live under God's rule. Instead of experiencing his blessing, they experience his judgment. And so do we. And while God could have ended it there, he didn't. In his love, he determined to restore the kingdom. And you could call that the promised kingdom. He chooses a man and makes a promise. He talks, he tells Abraham that through his descendants, he will establish his kingdom. They're going to be his people. They're going to live in his land and they're going to enjoy his blessing. And as you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see how God's promise to Abraham begins to be partially fulfilled to the people of Israel. You could call this the partial kingdom. God rescues his people from Egypt. He makes them his own people. He gives them his law so they can live under his rule. He enables them to experience his presence in the tabernacle. God takes them into the land through Joshua. Then later, under the leadership of David and Solomon, they experience a period of peace. God's people, God's place, experiencing God's blessing, but they keep rebelling against God's rule, and as a result, they experience God's judgment, and they are sent into exile, uh, just like Adam, really. And you might think it was over. Israel splits into two parts. The north is taken into Assyria. Then the south is taken to Babylon. And you might think it's, it's, it's all over. But during this time, God raises up prophets. And those prophets explain what's going on. And they say Israel's being punished for their sin 
But there's hope, and that hope is in a day in the future when God acts through his king, the Messiah, to fulfill all his promises. We can call that the prophesied kingdom. And then they come back from exile, and what? It doesn't seem to happen. Not much seems to happen. They rebuild the temple, and what's all, what are all the old men doing? Crying. Because it doesn't seem as glorious. And then there's silence for about 400 years. They get back into the promised land from exile, but not much happens until Jesus. About 400 years after the Old Testament was completed, Jesus begins his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying the king is here, and he's come to make it possible to set up God's kingdom. And you see, as he goes about his ministry, that he has the power to do it. As he has power over uh, nature, he can fix nature. As he has power over death, he can fix the problem of death. As he has power over uncleanness, he can deal with lepers and things like that. And he has the power and right to forgive sin. And yet, he went about making everything right in a surprising way by dying on a cross. And he did that in order to deal with a primary problem in the world, the problem of sin. He did that it that way because he had to deal with the curse our sin had brought on God's place and to make it possible for people to come back into the presence of God the Father by dying as their substitute, taking the punishment they deserved in their place. The fact that he rose from the dead proved that his mission was successful and that there's hope for those who would put their trust in him. But now there's a new little twist to how all this is working out. And when we get to the New Testament, that's kind of the problem the New Testament's trying to answer. How, if God made these promises to Israel and Jesus is fulfilling the kingdom, is it going to happen since the Jews rejected him and most of us are Gentiles? And when we get to the New Testament, we're going to have to think that through, actually. Basically, there's two options. And so uh, one would be, with the coming of Jesus, those promises that were made in the Old Testament have been transcended. And so it'd be kind of like if I promised you a horse before there were cars, and then I gave you a car, I'm not breaking my promise, I'm just making it bigger. And so some would say that's what's happening. The other option would be, no, those promises are still on. Those promises that God made to Israel are still on. God has such a big plan that he's going to use the nation of Israel and the church to accomplish that plan. And they both fulfill a little bit of a different purpose in how he's going to accomplish that plan. I'm going to quote here. The coming of Jesus means the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation. Since there are two comings of Jesus, certain promises are fulfilled with Jesus' first coming, while others await the second coming, and I think personally that's what's happening. The Bible makes it clear that through his death and resurrection, Jesus did absolutely everything that was needed to restore God's kingdom, but he didn't finish the job while he was on earth. Instead, he went up to heaven and let us know that there would be a delay before he returned. Um, And uh, the reason for that delay was to give more people the opportunity to put their trust in him. And so we're living in this time period that the Bible calls the last days which began back on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came in power to help the church tell the whole world about the victory of Jesus Christ. And the church exists basically to say it's not over. Israel rejected Jesus, but God's still going to keep his promises. He's still going to keep his promises. And so we are here to say there's still hope. There's still hope. That plan that you read about, about this future kingdom, it's, it's on. Jesus is going 
it ha- it, Jesus is going to fulfill it. And so this is the time, you could say, of the proclaimed kingdom. And then finally, you have the perfected kingdom, which I think comes in two stages. One, a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth, and then finally, an eternal kingdom. But let's just focus on the last part now. There's going to be this great day in the future when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be marveled at and enjoyed by all who have believed. His enemies are going to be separated from his presence in hell, but his people will join him in a perfect new creation. And we get a picture of what that's going to look like at the end of the book of Revelation, where we see God's people, believers from all nations in God's place, the new heavens and the new earth, living under God's rule and enjoying his blessing forever. And that's basically what the story of the Old Testament is about, how um, it begins with the Garden of Eden and it ends with this great city in Revelation where God's presence comes down and dwells on this earth. And he, he fixes, completely fixes what man's broken, uh, but better in a way that's better than we ever possibly uh, could have imagined. So that's sort of a short view, a short description of uh, what the Old Testament is about. It's like a, a little bit of a picture of that's on the fr- a little bit of a glimpse of the picture that's on the front of the box. And that big picture, you need to keep that big picture in mind as you do your devotions in the Old Testament. <laughs> what is this teaching me about God? How is this getting me ready to understand the salvation that God's providing in Jesus? And How does this give me hope that God is going to establish this great kingdom that Jesus uh, Jesus proclaimed? Thanks, guys.